So Grace Church exists as one church in many communities all across Central Florida, um, in Orlando, Oviedo, Lake Nona, Winter Garden, and most recently here in Claremont. We're the newest campus here at Grace, and we at Grace exist to help people take their next steps towards Christ, no matter where that may be. That's our hope to come along and help us all become and look more like Jesus. One of the things that marks us at Grace at each of our campuses, we have live preaching. Uh, and so the campus pastor is the one who is teaching. And as we teach, um, we most of the time do something called expository preaching. What that means is just the majority of time here, we're walking verse by verse, chapter by chapter through books of the Bible. So we love the Bible. We love God's words to us. So our goal is to just kind of hold a microphone up to him and let him speak to us. And so since we started last January, uh, we've been walking through the gospel of John and we're coming finally to the end. Uh, we are now reaching John 21, the final chapter uh, Um, as John has been laying out this entire book. So if you remember, just kind of a a recap, the general structure that John has is divided into two halves. The first half uh, deals with the book of signs, is what it's often known as, as John writes through Jesus's public ministry and notices and writes about different public signs and miracles that Jesus did, both how it testified to him as the Messiah and giving his people a glimpse of what the kingdom of God looks like and what it will look like for eternity as he begins to overturn the curse. Then the last half, chapters 13 through 20, deals with the last week of Jesus's life. So John spends half of his gospel dealing with six days, uh, and this is known as the book of glory, walking through the final week of Jesus' life, his uh, arrest, trial, crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. So we've just finished chapter 20, which is kind of this last half, um, and at the very beginning and the very end, John sticks a prologue to kind of lay out and introduce what the book is about in chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And at the end, kind of to give him a good uh, balance and symmetry, gives us an epilogue here at the final chapter of 21 as we jump in. Because you may have noticed last week as we read, it felt a bit like the story was resolved. Um, And we'll get into that actually in just a moment. Let's read first John chapter 21 before we dive into everything else. We'll be in John chapter 21. Originally, there's going to be verses 1 through 14. We're going to go ahead and just read the whole chapter today and talk about it. And uh, just why not? It's the Bible. We love it. Let's read it. So John 21, we'll read the whole chapter. If you grab one of the Bibles next to you, it's on page 776 and 777. Uh, If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the chapter numbers are the larger numbers. The verse numbers are the smaller ones. We'll be in chapter 21, verses 1 through 25. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that Bible with you. That's our gift to you. So Jesus now, after his resurrection, appears to his disciples once again in chapter 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Debedee, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, well, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet his disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, well, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. A disciple who Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, 
they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it already and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? For they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them, and so were the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to them, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said it to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, then feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. And Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to Peter, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So we finish here in this story, this interesting story that feels a touch out of place as Jesus now shows up to some of his disciples one more time, catches some fish, eats breakfast, restores Peter, gives his apostles the commission of what they are to do as they go out, and sends him and John on different futures. So again, as we were saying earlier, it felt like in 20, the book kind of resolved. At the very end of 20, verses 30 and 31, John, after three resurrection encounters of Jesus with Mary Magdalene, his whole disciples, and then Thomas, we get the purpose of the book, the purpose statement, 30, 31 of chapter 20. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you might believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God and that by believing have life in his name. That's such a good place to end, John. Like you can feel like he's coming down to land the plane. But just like any preacher, as he's coming down right before he gets there, he takes off and gives you about three more points. And we get then chapter 21. It's like, well, it felt so resolved. So what are you doing here? Well, to illustrate what I think what John is doing here, we're going to talk about the Avengers Infinity War. 
you knew I had to try to work it in somehow, right? It came out this past Thursday night. I went and saw it at 11.15 at Regal Point, the largest screen in Central Florida, seven stories high. Um, and I just couldn't not talk about it, right? I'm morally obligated to use it as an illustration regardless. You may say, what is Avengers? I don't know what that is. What is Marvel? That's, I don't, I've never heard of that before. That's fine. You won't be lost. And also, no spoilers. I have too much integrity to be able to tell you what's going to happen in the movie. So do not fear But in Avengers, you get what Marvel does in almost all of their movies. As they tell these stories of superheroes, you get this entire story. There's a villain, there's a plot, and at the very end, there's a resolution, and then the credits start, right? The post-credits after the movie, and the credits start rolling, and no one stays for those, right? It's like, we don't want to know who the assistant costume designer was to the third actor. No one cares, And so in a movie theater, when the credits start, the lights come on and everyone leaves. But Marvel has started something different 10 years ago that's changed the way in which people watch the credits. They, at the end of their movies, even though the movie is resolved, they let the credits go. And at the very end of the credits, they have a short little scene for something else. It's usually tying into what they're about to do next. It's their post-credit scene. So you go to a Marvel movie, and maybe you've never been before. Maybe you go see Avengers, and you get done, the credits start, and you look around, and everyone's still eating popcorn, and you're like, what are they doing? They're waiting for the post-credit scene. That after the story has resolved, there's this short little teaser where they then are introducing what they're going to do next. So they'll maybe introduce a character that's going to get a new movie, or perhaps it's laying out for them kind of the new phase that Marvel is going to head into, because they are doing these movies in four different phases. So we're currently towards the end of phase three, about to enter phase four, for all those who care where we are in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. (laughs) But this is their tactic that they've used. They've changed the way that people see credits, because even though the story is resolved and the movie is over and the credits roll, they're going to give us this small little post-credit scene that's going to show us what's about to happen next in the next movies. Well, listen, Marvel didn't start that. The gospel writer John started that. He was the OG of the post-credit scene. And here in chapter 21, the story is resolved right at the very end of 20. And here in 21, John gives us a post-credit scene in which he gives us a glimpse of what the life and the mission of God will look like next and what's about to come. And we get this interesting story of fish and restoration and Peter. And so the two things I want us to see here is, is twofold. Is that first in verses 1 through 14, we see Jesus feeds his apostles. Through this miracle, he comes and he feeds his apostles, invites them in, and asks them to come eat breakfast. But then secondly, in verses 15 through 25, Jesus then calls his disciples to feed his sheep. So those would be the two things we'll be looking at, that Jesus feeds his apostles and then that Jesus calls his apostles to feed his sheep, as he then sets the stage and gives us a glimpse for what is about to happen Next. So first, Jesus feeds his apostles in verses 1 through 14. Now I want you to look and notice right at the very beginning as John is laying out kind of the context in the scene to see what the disciples are doing and what these apostles are doing. Because we have to remember where we are in this story. So John tells us after this, Jesus revealed himself in verse 1. So we don't know exactly how long it was after uh, the resurrection encounters that they had in chapter 20. We know that it was sometime after this. Uh, The feast had ended in Jerusalem. They've now left Jerusalem after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They've gone back to their hometown in Galilee, and they are just going fishing, right? So again, Brad Paisley didn't come up with that song. Simon Peter did. 
He's going fishing, right? And he, I guess we got like four country music fans in here. Or it was just a terrible joke. One of the two. So Timon comes back home, and this is after, right? Remember where this is in the story. They've just seen Jesus raised from the dead. They know that he was crucified. They've seen the scars in his hand. They interact with him. They see him interact with Thomas. And Jesus commissions them and says, just as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So they have this miraculous encounter with this guy who used to be dead. And they then receive this divine mandate and mission to be sent by God to carry on his mission. Right? So think about it. If you have an experience like that, don't you think that your life is going to be turned upside down a little bit? You're going to have this fire in your belly as you go and you're ready to go and turn the world upside down. But in verses 1 through 4, we don't really see any of that. It looks very mundane. Peter's like, well, I got nothing else to do, so I guess I'm going to go fishing. And the other disciples are like, well, we got nothing else to do, so I guess we'll go with you. And they go fishing at night. They're a bit uncertain. They just go and do the kind of everyday stuff of life. And even when they see Jesus, they're a little uncertain. Now, probably it was early in the morning. They probably just couldn't see him because he was a long way off. But still, they're tired. They're uncertain. The boldness and kind of clarity that we see in the apostles and the acts, we don't see here. And so we should ask, well, that's why, why is that? I mean, they just encountered Jesus and were sent by him. They've more than likely gone back to Galilee to fulfill that mission, but they lack the fire that they have in Acts. So why is that? If they had an experience like that, a spiritual and religious experience like that. Friends, the reason why is that in this story, we get this unique snapshot of what a spiritual and religious life looks like divorced from the power of the Spirit in our lives. Because here in John 21, the Holy Spirit had not yet been poured out on them as in Acts 2. And it was a result of that where they were filled with the power of the Spirit to walk forward, to continue the mission that gave them the boldness that, as the Jewish officials said in the book of Acts, that these men have turned the world upside down. But here, it doesn't matter what their experience was. Apart from that power of the Spirit, they lacked that kind of authority. They lacked that kind of boldness. And so for me, one of the things that I'm always concerned about for us as a church is that we may just get into the rhythms of a religious and spiritual life, and we may divorce and pull ourselves away from the need and dependence for the Holy Spirit in our lives and to see fruit in the people around us. It is that we can do nothing apart from that power in our lives. We need Him every single minute, every single second of every single hour that we would rely on him and not just rely on maybe a religious experience we had when we were younger. If we walked an aisle or prayed a prayer or raised our hand, but that we would lean on him for power to see change and boldness as we would prayerfully turn this world upside down. And so these disciples are still kind of in the mundane uncertainty before they've received the power of that spirit in Acts 2. But even in that, as the story begins to unfold, you see the different characters of the disciples play out. Right, look at verse 7. We see this over and over again. So that disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter. So that's John. John wrote this book, and he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. And I'm like, John, like, come on, man. Like, a little humility? Like, seriously? The one whom Jesus loves? Like, I, I, I want to make sure people don't know who I am. But we all know it's you, John. So it's here that John and Peter are both in this setting, and John was the one that said to Peter, it's the Lord. 
John was the first one to see and discern that it was in fact Jesus standing there on the shore. But then when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment and ran into the sea and began to swim towards him. So John was the first to see, but Peter was the first to act. John had this spiritual discernment and Peter had this spiritual kind of rashness to say, I will act and jump in. I haven't really even thought about it yet. I'm just going to go and follow. And you see the different personalities of Peter and John. You've seen this throughout the gospel as they both ran to the tomb and John got there first and he saw the tomb was empty, but he didn't go in. But Peter was the first to go in. They had these different kind of personalities. And each one of them is beautiful and specifically designed by God. There is not a mistake in any of them. Because if you've been around humans for any amount of time, you know that we are all different. We have different personalities, different proclivities, different abilities, maybe even the ability to have more spiritual discernment. And maybe you're in the category that just runs and does things, maybe before you really think about it. Both are good and both are given by God for the building up of his church. Whether or not you are a feeler or a thinker, whether or not you're an extrovert or an introvert, we do not raise one above the other. We do not raise different personalities above others. Listen, especially if you're married, you know that more than likely your spouse is not just like you. And what you can have the tendency to do is that you may say, God, this part of them really annoys me. I wish that they were more like me. Why couldn't they just pick up their stuff? How hard is that? Right? You just, when you take it off, you just pick it up. It's not difficult. Instead of having it build up and all of a sudden start to come off the ground up to your knees and you're having to wade through the clothes and then it's this long two-hour project to fill up the, clean up the house, just put it up when you take it off. It's not that difficult. Or maybe, you know what, you get to the very end of the toothpaste tube, just throw it away and get a new one. You don't have to get every last milli ounce out of that toothpaste tube. It's fine. That's maybe like half a cent. Just throw it away and get a new one. It's not that difficult. And what can happen is that these different personalities that we have that have been designed by God and been given to you, beautifully created and orchestrated, we can begin to get annoyed that our spouse is like that. And what we say is not praising God for creating them in his image, but we begin to step back and wish that they had been created in ours and say, <laughs> and say, why couldn't they be more like me? But friends, listen, God has created them and designed them all particularly and beautifully. And we then can step back and see that and begin to celebrate everybody. Man, people starting to hug out there. <laughs> Marriage is being saved. But we see and we can begin to celebrate the differences and the beauties of personalities because we see it even here in Peter and John. Throughout this gospel, you see that there are Peters and there are Johns. You see that there are Marys and there are Marthas. And there are differences in personalities and the way in which God has designed them. And listen to me, not just within marriage, but even within the church. God has given each person different personalities and different gifts for the building up and edification of his church. He did not make a mistake whenever he made you. I can promise you that. And so we celebrate and we welcome that in as we see even here the difference between Peter and John. John is the first to see. Peter is the first to act. And so then when Peter jumps out and he begins to swim to the land, we see when they get to Jesus what Jesus is doing there on the shore. He's got a fire going and he's cooking some fish. He's cooking some bread. He's getting ready to eat. 
And his invitation to his disciples in verse 12, he says, come and have breakfast. Now, I don't know if you picked up on this through John. John references it a number of times, but especially in Luke's gospel, Jesus is eating just about all the time. Jesus loves to eat. One writer, Robert Karras, said that in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. That almost the entire gospel is centered around the table. And we see the importance of eating within the Bible, especially within Jesus' ministry, as he's inviting them in. And even here at the very end of the gospel, as Jesus appears the third time to his disciples, he invites them to come and eat. And it's there around a fire, eating fish and bread, that Jesus restores Peter and gives his apostles their mission. Listen, there's something special that happens around a table. Jesus knew that. God designed it. And so for us, I want to make sure as a church that we understand that and begin to utilize that too in our lives. That we see our dinner tables as immensely powerful spiritual tools that God has given us to be able to connect with and love people around us as we welcome them into our homes and around our tables to connect with and get to know people within this church, to be able to see that these are the moments that God has given us to be able to be strategic and missional as we are hospitable, just as Jesus was, welcoming people around a table because people begin to let their guards down and you get to hear more of who people are and you get to understand their stories and hear who they are and what they love and what they're passionate about. And Jesus does just this with his disciples. And notice that Jesus has a meal already prepared. He's cooking fish and has the bread as his disciples walk up. But he also then invites his disciples to participate in the meal. He tells them to bring, in verse 10, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So yes, he's got the meal ready, but he also tells them, you come and bring what you have and we'll eat it as well. He He invites them to participate in this story. And we see that the fish that they brought were huge. There was 153 of them to be exact. Now listen, when it comes to this passage, people have tried to go just this, in this remarkably kind of off-the-wall religious symbolism of what 153 may mean. And there's a speculation, and, and people begin to try to figure out what it is. My favorite was one commentator who noted that 153 is a triangular number of 17. And 17 is the sum of both 12 and 5 and 10 and 7. And all four of those numbers are important in the Gospel of John. And I'm just like, man, like, like you're just trying too hard, man. Just relax. You know what probably happened? These were fishermen who were going to sell the fish they had, so they had to count them. They wanted to know how many fish they had. So this was more than likely just an accurate memory of a careful count. There's no need for us to try to dive in and figure out what's the religious symbolism here. Listen, if John doesn't give it to us, then God doesn't want us to figure out what it is. That we don't have to try to over-spiritualize every single thing in the Bible or in our lives. This is probably just John going, we counted them, next day we were going to sell them. Because you know what? We didn't just want to tell them we had a lot of fish. We wanted to tell them we had 153 of them. They were fishermen, and they knew exactly what was going on. So they counted them. And so they then brought some of those fish to the meal. And they gave them to be able to cook, and they ate them together. And so we see here in these first 14 verses that Jesus feeds his apostles. And so what people then, again, try to do is try to figure out, well, what's the the symbolism here? What is going on? Maybe this is a reference back to earlier when Jesus called his apostles first to be his disciples. 
And there was the whole story of casting the fish on the other side, maybe to be fishers of men. And, and that very well may be, but one of the ways in which we should read the Bible is we should try to first understand what does the story fit into the context immediately around it. And then beyond that, how does the story fit into the context of the book as a whole? And so as we see, John doesn't include that story of Jesus calling his disciples to be fishers of men, like in Matthew 4. He does that for a reason. The only other time fish are included is in the story of the feeding of the 5,000, when Jesus has the fish and the loaves. So I don't think that's what John is getting at here. And instead, as you see throughout the Gospel of John, you have this pattern as Jesus performs signs, and then he gives explanations of them. This has happened since chapter 2, when he was in the temple and overturned the temple. And he said, this uh, temple will be torn down and I'll raise it up in three days. So you have a sign and then an explanation. Miraculous experience and then a miraculous explanation. Over and over, this is the pattern throughout John's gospel. And so we should see again here what Jesus is doing as we have this miracle as he feeds his disciples. And then we should look at the discourse following, his explanation after this, to try to see what the meaning is. And so what we see then is, yes, he feeds his disciples in 1 through 14, but then secondly, in 15 through 25, Jesus calls his apostles to feed his sheep. So there is this miraculous sign that happens, and Jesus then says, here's why I'm doing this. What I am doing to you now physically, I'm calling you to go and do spiritually, to go and feed my sheep, right? This is his call to Peter. As he tells them, feed my lambs, tend my sheep. And then finally in verse 17, tells them, feed my sheep. This is the call to Peter on behalf of the entire apostles. Jesus saying, this is what you are being sent to do. This is your mission. Go feed my sheep. There's a clarity there. So the question then we have to step back and ask is, well, how will the apostles feed the sheep? Who are the sheep? What will they eat? Is it actual food they're supposed to go and feed every one of the disciples? I don't think so. That would be difficult today to feed us. So how is it that they will feed them? So to jump around and look at a few different verses to give us a sense of what it is Jesus is calling his apostles to, beginning with uh, Matthew 4, verses 3 through 4. You don't have to flip there if you don't want to. We'll have them up on the screen. But if you'd like to, you're more than welcome to. So asking the question, what is it the disciples, the apostles will feed? We see in the story of Jesus being tempted, the tempter came to Jesus in the wilderness and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy, saying, hey, this has been true forever, that man doesn't just live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God, from his mouth, that my sustenance, my growth, my feeding happens from every word that comes from God's mouth. That's the spiritual bread that I need. We see this also in John 6 as Jesus feeds the 5,000. He then gathers everyone together and says, this is what I'm doing. Yeah, you just got bread here, but I am the bread of life. You have to come to me. And at the very end of that, Jesus says to his 12, after he says that he's the bread of life, he says to his apostles, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. So the end of this discussion is Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life to give to my people. And he tells his disciples, do you want to leave? Simon Peter goes, no, you have the words that I need. Your words are my life. And I need them to be able to grow from your bread. 
So we see that the disciples, the apostles, are called then to give this sense of feeding the sheep the very words of God to his sheep. This is what Jesus is calling his apostles to. We see this in the New Testament in Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 20. Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus and says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You've been welcomed into our house. Now, where is that house built? It is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets and Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So the church is built on the foundations that the apostles have laid. This book, this explanation of Jesus' life and his ministry that the apostles have brought forth is the foundation on which the church is built. So Jesus is calling his apostles here in John 21 to say, go. The Holy Spirit, remember John 17, the, or John, um, John 16, the Holy Spirit will bring to remembrance everything that I've done. So as you go, begin to tell people my words, what I've commanded them, my life. And as you do that, you are laying a foundation together with the prophets of the Old Testament that my church will be built on. As we now shift, we begin to see what is coming next. And what is coming next is these apostles going and giving the people of God the very words of God and seeing within this Bible that it is here we have the foundation of the church. It is his words, the words of eternal life, not living by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We see this even in Jesus' great commission to his disciples, right? The one that we may all know, if you've grown up in church, Matthew 28, as Jesus tells his disciples, he comes to them, says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And so we love to drill in on that first part. Go and make disciples. That's the mission of the church. It's clear. But how? How are disciples made? How are disciples fed? They're fed through baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, welcoming them into the community. And then we love to forget this part when it comes to the Great Commission. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So Jesus says, as you go and make disciples, raise them up, give them my words. Let them feed on my words as they abide in me. Remember John 15, Jesus says, if my words abide in you, then ask anything you wish and it will be given to you. Jesus is concerned with getting his words, the very words of God into the hearts of his disciples. And he's telling his apostles to go now and feed them. Give them my words. This is how they will grow. And we see in the Great Commission, Jesus calls his disciples and he calls the church not to make converts, but to make disciples. And there's a difference between the two. Our concern is not just to try to create a situation in which maybe you feel manipulated or emotionally moved to respond in a moment and your life doesn't change at all. And we say, well, you've made a decision. Our concern is not getting people to make decisions, but getting God to make disciples in which they don't just come in a moment, they begin to grow and they are fed as they are taught to observe everything that Jesus has said. And we are fed by the very words of God as we grow then and begin to look more and more like Christ. Listen, because what, what will happen often is I feel people will come to me and will ask, well, I, I feel like my relationship with the Lord is just, I don't know, it feels like there's distance, it feels stagnant, I don't really know what's wrong. And I don't say this, but I may start saying this now. I probably won't because it's still kind of snarky, but still. 
wanting to ask, well, listen, if someone ever came to me and they came and they said, you know, I just feel really weak. I've been losing a lot of weight. I can't exactly, I could just, I'm so lethargic. I can barely get out of bed. I don't have any energy to do anything. I haven't eaten in 34 days and I cannot figure out what is wrong with me. I go, eat something. The problem is you had not eaten anything. Your, bone, your body is withering away because you haven't eaten anything. In the same way, friends, often people may come and you may feel, I, I feel just so distant from God. My spiritual life feels like it's withering and I don't know what the problem is. And we haven't opened up this book that gives us the bread of life to be able to grow. We haven't eaten in weeks, maybe. Maybe months. Goodness, maybe years. Because what I can guarantee you is the enemy will do everything he can to keep this, these words from getting into your heart. Because he knows that's the way in which he keeps you stagnant. As Jesus calls his apostles, he tells them, get my words into my people. Feed my sheep. Give them the bread of life. As I have fed you, so you go and feed my disciples. Feed my church. It's on that foundation that my church will be built. And so we see this is the call that God has for us. It makes it clear then that this is the call of the mission of the church to make disciples. Sometimes we can make it overcomplicated. It's not. God calls us to make disciples. Or as we put it here, to help people take their next steps towards Christ. It's the same thing. That's why we exist and what it is we're striving for. And so a few things I want to kind of end with today is seeing the, the reality that if this is true, then if this is the call that Jesus has for his church, this is then the most important thing about a church, whether or not they give their people the word of God. And so the, the truth is, the reality is, is that most of you won't stay here at Grace Claremont for the rest of your lives. You'll move, whether it's to get a new job, to get closer to family, maybe to get further away from family, whatever. But the reality is at some point you will probably move and you'll be looking for a church. And it can be overwhelming trying to figure out what's important about a church. What kind of is the list that we should be looking for? We like the worship music, the kids ministry, fun and engaging. Uh, Do they have Donut King? Do they not have Donut King? Listen, all of these things matter, especially the donuts. But what is the most important thing as we go and look at what a church has? The most important thing is this. Is that church feeding the sheep? Is the word of God being divided up rightly and given to its people? And what can be confusing is that we go to any church and every church will say, we love the Bible. Right? There are some churches that will, will take it at the very beginning of the sermon and say, this is my Bible. It is who it says I am and it says something else, something else. And then they'll go down and not really get into it at all for the rest of the service. And we can begin to be confused about, well, what does a church say about the Bible and what do they believe? And an image that's helpful as we begin to look and see what a church thinks about the Bible, particularly within the, the sermons, is, is the Bible used um, as patio furniture, a diving board, or a swimming pool? Right, with baptisms happening later tonight in a pool, I couldn't help but use a pool analogy. <laughs> Often, uh, you may go to a church and the Bible may feel more like patio furniture. Well, you're there, you show up to a pool, you're not there to just hang out in the patio furniture, you're there to swim. And it's there almost as decoration as it's around to look nice and make sure we understand we are in fact at a pool. Go get comfortable. Listen, the Bible calls us to do a lot of things. It never calls us to be comfortable. And so as we go and we begin to look at churches, is the Bible functioning more as decoration 
than as the actual meat of what the entire service is about. Secondly, maybe uh, what I see the most is that often the Bible is used as a diving board in which there is a passage or a verse that's read at the very beginning, and then we use it to kind of leap off to then talk about whatever it is we want to talk about. The, the, the burden that I feel each and every week is to get into the passage and to make whatever the meaning of the passage is, the meaning of the text. I don't want to just use it at the very beginning, jump off and go talk about whatever we want to talk about. And so thirdly, the image we're looking for is not just seeing the Bible as patio furniture or a diving board, but the pool itself that we don't just dive uh, off of, but we dive into, and then we swim around in it. The word of God is lifted up and explained and applied and praised and used every single week as the entire anchor of the service that is rightly divided and applied into our lives. And so as you go and you begin to look for churches, friends, this is the most important thing about a church. Do they feed the sheep? Those other things matter. Again, Donut King, really important, especially whether or not they have cream-filled donut holes. These are important questions to ask, but the most important is this as we begin to go. Because one of the reasons why uh, us as a church, we're here, is to not just have you while we're here and then see you like as you leave, we don't care anymore. No, you're part of a family when you join this church. So even as you go and you move somewhere, we want to be able to help you find churches wherever it is you're moving to. Because we want to help you get connected to where you can continue to grow. So I don't know everyone in the world, but I do know a lot of people. I'm extroverted. I love to meet people. And so whether or not it's people that I know to a city you're moving to or friends that I know that know friends and pastors there, we can help you find churches too in cities that you're moving to. We feel that burden to help you move and continue to grow and be involved in a local church that will continue to feed your sheep. So listen, as you move, we want to be able to help you do that. Uh, we want to help you find a church that's centered there. But secondly, we see not just that this is an important thing for the church, and this is what we're called to do. Even here, this is what we're called to do as a local church at Grace Claremont, uh, practicing and preaching not just on Sundays, but in our kids' ministry, in our small groups, and everything we do. Are we feeding the sheep? But also secondly, seeing that this is important for our own lives. It's not just the call for the church, it's a call for the Christian life. The most important thing for you to do is to feast on his words. Like we said earlier, if we neglect this book, then you neglect your soul. Friends, it's here that we have the words of life. John Bunyan, the old Puritan minister that wrote the um, Pilgrim's Progress, had in the cover of his Bible, he said, either sin will keep you from this book or this book will keep you from sin. He knew the importance of this word. David knew the importance of this word. As he wrote in Psalm 119, your words I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. He saw the connection there, that as these words begin to get into our hearts, not just memorizing them, not just being familiar with them, but they begin to abide and find a home in who we are. They begin to shape how we see the world and decisions that we make. When it starts to take root, then we begin to abide in the vine, the true vine, Jesus Christ, and feast on the true bread of life, and we grow. And thirdly, I don't have time for this. We're going to talk about it anyway. Uh, thirdly, the, the thing that we see here is that this message to feed the sheep doesn't just fall on the teachers of the church. So this doesn't just fall to me. Right? What the church is not is just, hey, I'm going to stand up here and uh, use and express the gift that God has given me, and everyone else can come and just enjoy it and appreciate it, sit back and just uh, 
feast on the word and the gifts that God has given. Listen, the church, the local church is not a spectator sport. What happens on Sunday is not we just sit back and receive and then we just go on. The local church is about a body connected together in which God has gifted each and every person here uniquely and individually to be able to use the gifts that he has given you to build up his church for the ministry of the word. Every single person, no matter what it is. You may say, well, I mean, I don't, I don't have anything spiritual. Like, I don't like to teach. I love to cook. I said, awesome. Begin to cook. Have people to your house. Begin to make those connections. Invite other people. Begin to reach out and connect with people around your community. Use that gift that God has given you and that desire for the glory of God and for the advancement of his kingdom. You may say, well, I mean, I just, I, I don't really know any, anything else. I like to be organized and I love to like hang out with other people. I go, well, great. Organize mom play dates throughout the week. Get together with other people within the church. That is a remarkably spiritual thing. Use the gifts that God has given you to begin to press in and be involved in this body. I don't want people to just sit back and feel like this is a a concert or some kind of rally in which one person is up front and then everyone leaves and that's the end of it. Friends, this is the point in which we are equipped. Yes, we feed on the word and we are equipped. But what we see in Ephesians 4, God has given the church teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So what happens here is equipping. It is not the work of ministry. The work of ministry happens throughout the week in your life with the gifts that God has given you, no matter what they may be. Right, we see even in Acts 6, in the story of the very first kind of uh, proto-deacons um, uh, and elders, there was this, this um, uh, controversy, that's what I was looking for. There's this controversy that breaks out amongst the church between uh, the Greek-speaking Jews um, and the Jewish-speaking Jews. And there's this racial and ethnic tension that happens in Acts 6 in the very first church. So one thing we see is that racial tension is not new to the church. This has been around within humanity from the very beginning. And so we see then uh, the answer as they stepped in to the step into this tension. The disciples didn't step back and just go, oh, this isn't a gospel issue. We don't need to deal with it. They saw the tension that was developing between these two ethnic groups as an exact representation of the gospel and what was dividing the church. And they said, we've got to fix this. And as they fixed it in Acts 6, their solution was, uh, the problem was about some people not getting all the food that was supposed to be distributed. They were saying there was favoritism happening to these other groups of people. And the disciples stepped in and said, listen, we can't step into this on our own. We will appoint seven people to be able to serve the food and distribute it amongst the people evenly, godly people. So that, listen to why, so that it's not right for that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. It's talking about ministering and serving tables, being a waiter. I don't know if any of you have been a waiter. I have. It's not the most spiritual experience in the world to pick up crumbs and dirty plates and then probably to break them all as you turn a corner and you don't say corner, you run into somebody else and everything shatters and it's your fault and it has to come out of your paycheck, hypothetically. <laughs> and so he says here, it's not right for us to preach the word of God, to give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So in verse three, they say, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so as they then begin to appoint these deacons in the local church to handle these issues that are happening, particularly just serving tables, they say, and that is happening to free up us as the elders of this church to be able to be devoted to prayer and to the ministry of the word. 
And so a very everyday mundane activity of serving tables was directly connected to the feeding of sheep and the ministry of the word. It allowed the church to be able to function in the gifts that God has given it. And so listen, from 8 to 9 a.m. most mornings on Sundays, I'm in another room kind of praying uh, through this message and asking God to fill me with the power of his, his spirit. And if I was out here putting up the pipe and drape and getting everything ready, it, it could happen, but I would then walk into Sundays a little bit uh, uh, kind of in angst and probably a little more sweaty uh, and wouldn't have spent that time preparing for the ministry of the word and prayer. And instead, people have jumped in and said, hey, every, every Sunday morning, I will be there to put out chairs, put up pipe and drape so that you can go and prepare to devote yourselves for prayer and the ministry of the word. And in everyday activities, your gifts and the things that you do are directly connected and have an eternal significance. Putting out a chair, opening a door, starting a Bible study throughout the week, having people over to your home, whatever it is and however God has wired you, he's wired you uniquely to be a part of the body and to grow this body together, to participate, to not spectate but to be a part. He's asking you. He's saying, I'm going to cook the meal, but I want you to come with what you have and be a part of it as well. And the interesting thing is that even the gifts that we have, even the fish that the apostles had, Jesus had given it to them. But even then, he still invites them in to participate in that story. So Jesus here feeds his apostles, and then he calls his apostles to feed his sheep. This is the setting of the stage for what the next phase of God's redemptive plan will be, building the church on this foundation and feeding his sheep. And this gives us a clarity for how we are to engage in the mission that he has sent us on to make disciples and help people take their next steps towards Christ. And this is not possible apart from the power of his spirit. We need him to do any of this. Apart from him, Jesus says in John 15, 5, we can do nothing. When we realize that, our song then becomes really clear. Our prayer becomes really clear. I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord. No tender voice like thine can peace afford. I need thee, oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior. I come to thee. Let's pray. God, we thank you for being a God who is not silent, but a God who speaks. So we pray now that you would uh, lift up the beauty of your church and the preaching of your gospel and the feeding of your sheep, that we would hear and grow and be built up upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. God, we love you and we thank you for all that you've done. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.